This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. So I've, I've mentioned it now three times, but I'm going to say it again. We're continuing our sermon series in Luke. <laughs> and uh, in Luke chapter 4 today, we're going to be looking at uh, the temptation of Jesus. Um, and to kind of intro this, uh, I, I've, I've been watching The Mandalorian. Uh, if some of you guys have seen that, if you have not, it's a you know, spinoff of the Star Wars story uh, that's on TV. And, and it's actually, that story has ended and has continued with the book of Boba Fett. Uh, and you don't need to know much about what's going on in Star Wars or the stories to understand what I'm saying to you. There's just one character who looks at this former bounty hunter and says, running a family is more complicated than bounty hunting. Running a family is more complicated than bounty hunting. And from the Fast and the Furious to the Godfather, a lot of our movies have a lot to do with how we create a culture inside of our families. What will our families be marked by? But families are complicated. I think we could all agree. There are certain things that are said or not said. Uh, kids that have seen Encanto recently. There's a certain person that we don't talk about. His name is Bruno. Families have a tendency to be marked by certain things. There are certain things that differentiate them from the other. We are a family that does this, not this. Biblically speaking, the human family is marked by its relationship to its first parents. Makes sense. Adam and Eve. And our first parents, biblically speaking, uh, maybe there's a lot of things that we can mark uh, the, the human experience by, but what we learn is abundantly clear throughout Scripture is that humanity is marked by its inability to stand up to temptation. We fail every single time. Our inability to withstand temptation basically means to disobey God, His orders, His wishes, His commands. We are disobedient and so we are wayward. We are disobedient and so we are lost. We are disobedient and so we are hurting. And we disobey because we are tempted. Now, the Bible generally talks about three different areas that these temptations come from. And maybe you've heard this before. It generally says that it comes from the world, ourselves, or Satan. The world, other people, cause us to stumble. They cause us to be jealous. They're uh, cruel and mean to us. They abuse us. And so we are tempted to sin. But we don't need other people. We want things that we should not want. We want things that other people have. We can create enough disobedience in and of ourselves to, be, to live into uh, our family tree, as it is. But there's one final thing that tempts us, and that's Satan himself. Satan in the Bible is described as being an agent of light, perceived as an agent of light, that is. Like, I think sometimes we think of kind of our cartoon pictures of, of the devil, and we think, you know, he's red uh, with a pointy tail and a pitchfork sort of thing, and it's just like easily identifiable when it's going to be Satan. Uh, but Scripture talks about Satan way more craftily, way more cunning. He seems good. And in fact, we can see that with Adam and Eve. Satan comes to Adam and Eve and tempts them, and they saw that the fruit is good for eating. He's that crafty. Humanity may be strong enough to resent, uh, resist the temptation of peer pressure. Maybe you've got a story where you have resisted peer pressure. 
Humanity may be strong enough to resist some of its own temptations out of its own heart and to overcome things that have run it. But I got to be honest, if you've ever tried to diet, you know, we are in the month of January. It's not easy. But there's one thing that humanity has never been able to overcome, and that's temptation by Satan himself. Jesus said that if it were not for him, Satan would long to sift his disciples like wheat. Now, in the analogy, wheat doesn't have a lot of uh, power in deciding whether or not it's going to be sifted. Satan would just do it, right? That's how Jesus describes us, powerless against it, if not for Jesus. Humanity is powerless against most of its temptations, but it's especially powerless against Satan himself. He's too crafty. And the family of humanity is marked time and time again by succumbing to temptation, and only one has ever resisted. Today in our passage, we're going to read about this one who resisted the temptation of the devil. And not only by this are we going to learn some principles for how we too might resist, but we're also going to learn something very important about the kind of family we're a part of. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This comes from Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. <clears throat> so we're looking at temptation today. And our first part of our service is going to be looking at how to overcome temptation. And from Jesus, we'll learn that there's three major areas that we are tempted in. We are tempted when we lack basic provisions, when we want power by our own paths, and we are tempted ultimately to doubt God's word itself. So first, when we lack basic provisions. Uh, here, just remember the story. Jesus has been uh, wandering in the desert uh, for 40 days in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten. And in verse 2, it says that he was hungry. Jesus lacked basic provisions. And this is when Satan tempted him. Now, something immediately that we can pull from this is that Satan takes advantage of our suffering. Satan takes advantage of opportune times. 
Now, Satan tempted him to work a miracle to turn these stones into bread. And imagine, for somebody with the ability to turn stones into bread, how tempting that would have been. Jesus' fast is miraculous by many standards. Uh, most experts believe that with zero food added to the human body, uh, the human body might be able to live up to two months. But most would start getting weak enough to not carry out normal functions between 30 and 50 days. Jesus is at 40. Jesus isn't lying still in an air-conditioned room trying to preserve whatever energy he has. He's in the desert. We could assume that Jesus here is lacking not only food, but clean water, shelter, basic human needs. Now, maybe some of you have been in similar situations, lacking basic human needs. And often when people lack these things, there's no saying what they might do to get a hold of them. People that are starving will do a lot to get food for their families. A lot of things that they wish they wouldn't do. Jesus, 40 days in, is tempted to do something. And without basic provisions, it is a real temptation. God said food is good. Jesus, even in his resurrected body, ate fish with his disciples. Uh, he describes heaven as a bountiful feast. God loves food, which is great, I think, for all of us, because I think we all love food. Otherwise, we're probably not here, because you know you need it. So this basic provision, when we lack these things, there's opportunity. Now, here's what we learn from Jesus' answer. Jesus answers with Scripture. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament in his answer. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Father. And first, let's just pause and notice that uh, Jesus doesn't <clears throat> rebuke Satan by some otherworldly knowledge. Uh, Jesus was involved in the creation of Satan. Uh, Jesus was involved in creating all things, and Satan is a created being. He's not God's arch enemy from eternity past. Uh, he has a beginning and will have an end. But Satan was, or Jesus was not responding to Satan uh, out of some otherworldly knowledge, but he uses in his full humanity a tool that all of us have, God's word itself. And of course, that's clear in which passage he chooses, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Father. Now, this is really interesting because Jesus here is adding uh, another layer to Maslow's hierarchy of needs the top need, the most basic need of all of humanity is the word of God the Father. Greater even than food. Our need is to be filled with God's word. And that's actually going to be the answer to all of these temptations. If you were paying attention as we read, read through, every single time Jesus answers with Scripture, it is written, it is said. All of these quotations from Scripture, you could look them up and go see where they are written. And what Jesus is doing is showing us that God's Word is the only way that we will ever overcome any temptation. And it's a tool that we all have. Every temptation would be resistible if God's word really was your highest need. Is God's word our highest need? I bet most of us can be convicted just hearing that. 
in our comfort with plenty of food, water, shelter, and clothes. We have all of our basic needs met. And we know that God's word is not our highest need. But not only when we have all of our basic needs met, what about when we are suffering? I've talked to a lot of people who, when suffering, turn to God's word. You know, and they're they're looking for answers there. We've kind of neglected it for many parts of our lives, right? And then something happens and we we, we go to open God's word and we want to find what he has to say to us so that we might be nourished and filled and consoled. And we're saddened to find that we haven't actually practiced the habit enough to be able to digest it. Let's for a moment say that a basic need like food can be compared, as Jesus does, to our basic need of God's word. Some people think that basic necessities of life don't take practice, but they've never seen a two-year-old eat. How much food does a two-year-old get into its body? Maybe 10% of what it's given? Now, the devastating impact of that is that if we have a two-year-old's level of practice with God's word, we should expect to get 10% out. This is why Christians throughout time have made a practice of meditating, reading, digesting God's word. Because just like children need to learn to eat for a lifetime of health, we too need our most basic need met. Now, if you can only get 10% of what you need, imagine what happens when you're suffering and you turn towards it and you're getting that 10%. Don't get me wrong, that 10% is still gold. It's still the word of the Father there to nourish you. But we practice in times of health for the times of suffering. My family has a dark sense of humor. And so I remember uh, sometime as a child uh, seeing uh, somewhere on the news a famine happening somewhere in Red Cross or somebody was like dropping off pallets of rice. Um, And my dad like chuckled a little and he said, if there's ever a famine here, and someone drops off a pallet of rice in my backyard, I would die sucking my thumb on top of it because my dad doesn't know how to cook rice. If it's not Uncle Ben's in a microwavable package, he has not lived out the practice of how to make rice. Funny, self-deprecating, and a little somber, we suddenly realize that there's a practice that's lacking for basic survival. We are tempted when we lack basic necessities, and Jesus, right off the bat, shows us that God's word is absolutely necessary. It is the highest priority. And so, as I mentioned, Christians throughout time have memorized and meditated on Scripture. And so we might say, well, how do we practice that? And you know, uh, there's been this wonderful uh, invention in the last five, six hundred years of the printing press uh, and printers that that have allowed us all to have copies of God's word. And you got to think, there was 1,500 years of Christians before that that probably never had their own copy of God's Word. And so now we have it, and it's still difficult for us to read it, you know? It's still difficult for us to meditate on it. And, uh, you know, we're in the new year, and I know we all have New Year's resolutions, and those Bible in a Year programs come around. Uh, and I gotta be honest, I'm always behind. And I'm a pastor. We have to digest God's Word. We have to know the story. We have to work on the gross and fine motor skills of being able to understand what God is speaking to us. Not because he's spoken in cryptic language. It's written 
in English now. We've translated it. You can read it, but we still have to work at it. Now, I do want to offer a little tool, and this is also a plug for getting onto Trinity Notes. So I'm going to send around this article I saw recently. Maybe some of you have seen it. Uh, I saw this, this kind of headline that said, this is a Bible in a year program for shirkers and slackers. And how it's designed is basically just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, there's just a reading. And so you can, you can scratch it through in kind of your own timing and you just read what's on that day and they kind of have a description on how to do it. But that means uh, for people like me, you don't have to get it done in a year and then feel guilty every time you're behind two, three, four months, you know? And you're like, okay, I got four months of reading to do today. So like kids, stay in your room. <laughs> got to do all this reading. Whenever we face temptations, especially in the midst of our suffering, we have to be a people who have ingested and digested God's word. Now, we aren't only tempted when we lack basic necessities, uh, but also when we want power by our own paths. So Jesus is taken up by Satan, and he's shown all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, it says. Um, and, and he says that Jesus could have all of this right now, and that it was in Satan's authority to grant it. Now, there's a couple interesting things to notice here. Uh, first is this phrase, in a moment of time. Commentators seem to think that what that implies is that when Jesus was taken up, he was shown not only the kingdoms of his day, but all kingdoms that ever were, were then and will be in the future. Which means he didn't just see first century Rome, but he saw 15th century Qing dynasty of China, the 21st century United States, and any other future dynasties that we have not yet imagined. Jesus saw them all. A second thing to note is that Satan says that he has the authority to grant this. And at first we're reading through and we have to be like, really? Does, does he really? I mean, like, I've read a lot about God in this book. God seems to have all the authority. You'd be right. Um, however, Jesus does refer in the Gospel of John chapter 12 to Satan being the current ruler of this world and the current um, as in the time of Jesus, that he is reigning there may be some sense where Satan actually did have the right to offer this to Jesus. And there's something, uh, maybe a third thing that we can note about this, is that it wasn't wrong for Jesus to want it. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Every nation will bow to him without fail. It is what Jesus was meant for. But what Satan was offering, although it wasn't wrong in and of itself, was the manner of achieving it. Satan was offering him another path because, you see, God's path was foolish, costly, humiliating, involved a lot of suffering, shame, and contempt. Satan's path offered power now. We not only give in to temptation when we lack basic necessities, but also when we try to achieve good ends by our own paths, maybe even in spite of God. And this is especially true when it's good things that we're aiming for. It is good, generally speaking, to want to be successful at work. It is good, generally speaking, to want to start a family. It is good to want a better life for your children. What's wrong is taking your own path to get there. Jesus' response to Satan's temptation, again, comes from God's word. 
reinforcing our need of God's word to resist temptation, but it's instructive in another manner. Jesus responds that worship is due to God alone. Of course, we worship God in everything that we do, but we also follow his word to know which path to take to get there. You see, for Jesus, his goal was not his own kingdom by his own path, but God's kingdom by God's path. And that meant saving a people by taking their place. God's path meant suffering. God's path meant humiliation. God's path meant trusting that God's good gifts would come in God's good timing. And Jesus probably knew that God's good gifts were going to be beyond death itself. I wonder where you pursue good things by following your own path instead of God's. God has promised that you are precious in his sight. And I wonder if the path that he has called you on is to be the path of, uh, on the path of humility and anonymity, and you have chosen instead to pursue your own path of pride and fame. God has promised us riches and prosperity in his kingdom. And I wonder if now he's calling you to walk the path of frugalness, generosity, simpleness, and you have chosen instead to walk the path of lavish comfort. I wonder if following our own path to even good ends has left us more blind than where we started, more dissatisfied, more disappointed than walking the path that God has for us. Again, how are we going to know this path? How are we going to know what path God has laid out before us? And it's there in God's word. When you see the stories of God's people beforehand, you see those who God praises as being people after his own heart. People that have pursued good ends by his path, even if it meant suffering and abandonment and isolation. God's word must shape us to see his path. So we are tempted when we lack basic necessities, also when we want good ends by choosing our own path. But ultimately, and this is our third point, we will see that we are tempted in one final area. And this one is in some sense foundational, but it is specific in these ultimate verses. Because in these last temptations, Satan strikes at the heart of what all humanity has struggled with. Doubt of God's word itself. You see, Jesus has quoted God's word back to Satan twice. And Satan's like, I got it. Let me flip to Psalm 91. Let me tell you what it says in Psalm 91. Don't you want to see it come true? Satan takes Jesus up to a height, maybe 500 feet or so, on top of the temple and then kind of down a, down a cliff. And he says, you know, these people down here that are worshiping at this temple don't know that you are the Messiah. Doesn't that sting a little? You left your high throne room, you came down here, you said, I'm here, you're fulfilling all the prophecies in their presence and they want to kill you? Did you know what God said in his word? He said that your heel wouldn't strike a rock. If God holds up to his word, all these people will believe you. Don't you want to see it? One commentator can say that about Satan's tempting of Jesus that this is evil in all of its sophistication. Using God's word against him, demanding proof that God is who he says he is. 
Jesus, experiencing this temptation, was tempted to say, did God really say that my path was this path? Now, I wonder if you've, any of you have ever made a prayer like this, Lord, just show me a sign, then I'll really believe and I'll never doubt you again. Your word isn't enough. I want you to prove it. Then I will believe. We put God to the test. And in some sense, it seems reasonable. We're desperate to know without a doubt that he is there. We're desperate for him to prove it. That he loves us because sometimes it feels like he doesn't. But in that moment... Not only have we disregarded every word that he's ever given to us to the contrary, that he does love us, that he is pursuing us, that he has provided for us, but we also deny the reality of Jesus Christ himself, the very proof that God loves us. His son died. What more proof can you want? But we've reverted back to what our family does. We've asked the question, did God really say? And for many of us, this question seems valid because we read this ancient text and we believe that they're just words on a page and that anyone could have written them. But what happens when Jesus walks the earth is that he stands face to face to people, looking them in the eyes, in flesh and bone, and he says, these are my words to you. I have never failed them once. I am here to fulfill all that is outstanding. Believe me. This temptation to doubt God's very words is so deeply rooted in our beings that it goes all the way up our family tree to Adam and Eve. No human, except for Jesus, has ever trusted the words of God enough because we're related to the wrong people. We have a genetic defect we have a family system that reproduces the same sin over and over and over and over again. The same fundamental flaw. Right before our passage, at the end of chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, if you were to go back there and read that, you'd see this long genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it talks about Jesus' grandfather's grandfather's grandfather all the way till they get to Enos, the son of Seth, Seth, the son of Adam, Adam, the son of God. What Luke is intending us to understand is that as the temptation follows this genealogy, he's saying, look at these two sons of God and compare how they responded to temptation. So let's do that. Adam and Jesus. Jesus, hungry in the desert, lacked basic provision and yet trusted God's word. Adam, all the basic provisions he could ever want, plenty of food, plenty of protection, never once in danger and yet took the forbidden fruit. Jesus rested in God's path, even though he is Lord of lords, but was born into a stable to poor parents, unrecognized in a nobody. Yet he still trusted, he, he did not trust. Where am, I, where am I at? Hold on one second. I've lost my place. Jesus trusted God's word. Comparing these two, you're getting lost. Um, Adam had a commission in the garden from God himself to be fruitful and multiply, to expand the garden. Still took the fruit anyway. Jesus, isolated from the Father, with people around him doubting him, continued to trust the word of God and say, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Adam who walked face to face with God in the cool of the garden said, did God really say? The most ironic part I find about that is that Adam is doubting his own memory. <laughs> like God spoke directly to him, said, don't eat of this one. He's like, did he really say? The reason that we can't trust God's word to overcome temptation is because we have this the, a, a genetic defect that prevents us from being who we should be. And so the point of this story for Luke is not necessarily to set an example about how we should overcome temptations from the devil, although it does teach us those basic principles, which is always going back to the word of God. Luke's point, main point of this, is to teach us how desperately we need a new family tree. Because in some sense, although Adam never stopped being the son of God, he was written out of the inheritance, unworthy to partake of the blessings because he was not made of the right stuff. We needed someone who would write us back into the inheritance. We needed someone who could keep us in the inheritance. We needed someone who removed us from a family system of repeating failures into an adopted family of righteousness. Jesus stood alone before Satan to accomplish this. At the end of our passage, it says that Satan departed from him until an opportune time. And that time would come at the cross when Jesus again would trust his father's word, although he was abandoned by the father himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If Jesus stood up to the temptation, why did he die? Where is the justice it's because Jesus not only succeeded where Adam failed, just to be a good example to us, right? But he also went to rescue us, purchase us, redeem us into a new family. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed, and with his perfect obedience, he purchased a people for himself. Not perfect people, not people who messed up just a little bit. He purchased his enemies those who punched and spit on him, those who sinned against him and ran away, those who said to him, you didn't really say, those who demanded proof, this is who Jesus died for, people like you and me who have failed test of temptation again and again, and he has redeemed us from our old family tree and adopted us into his family. And so maybe there's one final piece that we can address. What does it look like for us to live inside of this family right now? It means that we try today and tomorrow and the next day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we work to follow Jesus, our big brother, who shows us what it means to be members of this family. This is what this family is about, trusting God's word in the wilderness. When they do come across temptation, when we come across temptation, we are to remember the word of God. We are to follow God's path for good things and depend completely on who he says he is. And when we resist temptation, we rejoice that we have lived in light of the new family that we're a part of. And we can say, yes, I belong here. And when we fail, we rejoice that we are still part of that family because we don't earn our right to belong there. It was earned by the only one who could do it. 
regardless of if we're able to stand up to the temptation or whether we're able to fail, we look ahead to the day when God will completely transform us so that we no longer disobey, so that we are no longer tempted ever again. That's our family inheritance. That's what the Father has in store for us, an inheritance because we are children of the living God. Amen? Now, Jesus, our older brother, knew that our faith was weak. I mean, how often did he tell his disciples, oh, you have little faith? I would imagine that we would probably get the same response. Oh, you have little faith. And the disciples were with God in person. And he said that he would not leave them alone, but he said that he would send them a helper, uh, somebody that would be a comforter to them, somebody who would convict the world because of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But this Holy Spirit, as I mentioned, is also described as a comforter. Now, I won't ruin Encanto, those of you who haven't seen it, you can tell that I'm a little bit enamored by it, right? My three-year-old's been watching it like on repeat. Now, if you've got young kids, maybe it's there. If you haven't seen Encanto, it's a beautiful, beautiful film. Um, but I, so I'll try not to ruin it for you. But if you have seen it, then you know that there's a beautiful shot of a family member who longs to be invited to the family table but has been written out of the joys of family fellowship. He can't join the family table. This table is Jesus' invitation to those who were written out of the inheritance. They're invited to come back by the blood of Jesus to the family table. The one who purchased them a right to sit at the table. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned, it, turned and he gave it to his disciples as I, now ministering in his name, give it to you. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his, said to his disciples, this blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you, writing you into the family table, is poured out for the remission of your sins take and drink. This table is for those who proclaim with their mouths and their actions uh, that they are part of this family. It's for those who have been baptized into this family, baptized into new life. If you're not sure you're part of this family, if you're not sure you want to be, if you're not sure that Jesus has actually uh, made room on this table for you or that the table even exists, I'd ask you to refrain from this portion of our service, not to declare something with your outward actions that is not an inward reality. If you're not fully committed to repenting of the ways that you have damaged this family, I'd ask you also to refrain from this table. Go repent to your God. Ask for forgiveness and say it is only by Jesus. There's nothing that I've done to deserve my presence here. In a moment, I will pray, and then we can come forward down this center aisle, uh, and then there's a serving station on my right and my left. Uh, there's gluten-free option for those who require. Please notify your server. Uh, there's red wine and then clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we need your reminder that Jesus has adopted us into a new family, that we are no longer who we once were, 
but we now belong to a different family, and this family is marked by different things. But Spirit, we're lost. Our faith is weak. We forget who Jesus is for us. We forget what he has accomplished, and we forget how desperately we long for it. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would transform these common elements to their spiritual purpose to nourish us this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name.